a couple of months ago, back in February, I went out to Reno, Nevada, and met with this guy named Luke Eisman, who he was starting a company trying to get people to pay him to spray sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere yeah. to cool the climate. And it's sort of a ridiculous concept. It was funny. I mean, him and his partner had half a million dollars, or I think later they had a million dollars in investment. And they're in a hotel room saying like, oh, doesn't this look like a meth lab? And like burning sulfur-based fungicide. And then they were going to put it in a balloon and release it and say like, wow, they just did a little bit to help the climate. And it's like, that's obviously not going to work, you know, but they're still charging ahead. But in a certain way, though, I didn't want to dismiss it completely. We're actually closer to that sort of thing than I think a lot of people realize. Really? I think the positive message to sort of take out of that, this is the ultimate tech solution. If we don't solve this problem by stopping emissions in the next couple of decades, this is the only option left in case of uncontrolled climate change. Hey, climbers. Welcome back to another episode of Climb by VSC. I'm your host, Jake Kapoor. And every week on this show, we speak to founders, investors, and industry experts about the ongoing fight against climate change. Now, we've all had enough of the doom and gloom, so it's time for stories about purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now, let's climb. Welcome in studio for this episode, our guest, Alejandro de la Garza, who's a reporter for Time. He's covering climate change through the lens of energy and technology. I ripped that right from your, uh, your bio there. But look, I was excited to have you on. We met last November. Um, you have some hot takes on a lot of topics that, that you know, um, we haven't covered on the show before. And you've also covered a diverse range of topics that I feel like hasn't gotten enough coverage, whether it's shipping, the cruise industry, how uh, consumers are changing their travel behavior because of climate. Um, so I figured this is a great opportunity for us to have those conversations. Before we dive into your hot takes, I just want to extend a warm welcome. Alejandro, thank you so much for joining me on Climb. Thank you for having me. I don't know if the takes are that hot. They're maybe, they're, they're warm, like, you know, 30 seconds in the microwave. But be believe it or not, we don't get that as many hot takes as I would like. I feel like everybody's very copacetic. So no, no pressure to, to get too hot with your takes. Look, before we, we dive into some of these topics, I would love for you to just help our listeners understand your background. How did you come to this work? You've been at Time close to five years now. Um, you've been covering uh, these topics as a researcher first, researcher reporter. So let's let's share the journey a little bit. How did you decide that green technology was something you wanted to cover? Yeah, um, we can probably keep this pretty brief because the journey is not not so exciting. It's sort of uh, they call it the greasy pole in uh, in New York media okay. world. So so I got out of college. I uh, started as an intern at Time Magazine. You know, five and a half years ago at this point. Um, I was fact-checking articles. They put me under uh, the technology editor. I was writing, um, you know, technology pieces. It wasn't, it was kind of, I was kind of thrown in there. I mean, I wanted to be a culture writer, actually. Um, really? But that was the opening they had. They And they said, can you do it? And I was like, well, I will take any media job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, so, so I, I was working kind of in that lane for about two years. Then the pandemic hit, um, and I switched over to a healthcare reporting role um, for about eight months. And yeah, then, you were covering contact tracing for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, contact tracing, especially the, like, I was trying to do sort of like a health tech merged mm. uh, beat there, yeah. which it's, it's, it's an interesting space. It's also, I mean, I think, I think very niche. Um, so, so it turned out to be a pretty small uh to be covering in some ways, or or just the the you know articles or ideas that were really super compelling were a little bit fewer and far farther mm. between. Um, mm -hmm. And then about two and a half years ago, my editors said they wanted to staff up the climate team more, and 
uh, asked me if I wanted to join and sort of take that tech expertise and just apply it to climate change yeah. specifically. Um, and I jumped at that and, and it really, it, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's, um, definitely a, uh, uh, a tough area to cover in some ways. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the, the climate journey that we're on is not exactly going in the right direction yeah. now. Um, but it's been really personally fulfilling because I feel like climate change, especially climate tech is, a, an area that suffers from an excess of narratives and a lack of a cohesive central narrative. So it's a place that as a journalist, um, it feels like your work is really important because basically everyone's trying to sell something. Yes. Um, and it's your job to sort of cut through that noise and actually delineate what is important, what matters, what's BS. Um, and, and try to try to do that work to give, give your audience a sense of what the heck is going on? Because depending on who you talk to, things are going great. Things are going so awesomely. Or for, for the most part, I mean, people who are not, you know, trying to sell you something um, will give it to you straight. And, and it's that, you know, there's been a lot of positive developments. There's interesting technologies out there. There's new businesses being developed that could have a positive impact. But as a whole, it's not we're still going fast. in the, well, I mean, we're still going in the wrong direction emissions-wise. I mean, yeah. emissions are still rising. Yeah. To be, falling. So, um, it's a, it's a complicated sort of thicket to, uh, to, 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 uh, fight your way through, but, but it's really rewarding. And, and I think it's, um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great place. The one I, I appreciate your perspective there. I mean, the, the biggest thing to me coming into this, this space, right. I was traditionally like a, a traditional software investor came into climate. The thing that was sort of the first mind boggling kind of experience was just how wide it is. And, you know, what we call climate tech touches real estate, touches industrials, touches shipping, you know, travel. Like, how, how do you decide what it is that you want to cover? You've covered a, quite a range, you know, offshore wind to maritime to travel to, I think, a, a whole host of these issues. What makes a story interesting for you and, and kind of gets you to lean in? Yeah, um, it's a tough question because half the answer is it's whatever my editors sure. uh, give me give sure. me the leash for and and say okay you have a budget you can go do it so so there's a little bit of that but um, I am really interested in sort of industries um, or technological systems that have the potential to actually do or start to do the sort of broad scale you know economy-wide transformations mm -hmm. that we need. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've been, you know, my, my email is full of pitches from, uh, you know, PR folks at companies. I mean, and, and I'm sure they're very well-intentioned people and trying to make a difference, but they're trying, they're talking about, you know, I'm not going to, I have one in mind, but I'm not going to say it because that seems mean. <laughs> um, but, you know, something that goes on your countertop and it's going to help you do like, you know, use a little bit less, you know, recycle your banana peels right, or something. Right. And it's like, I, I really don't think that's what we need to be talking about here. I mean, that there's consumer devices and like nice gadgets that like conceivably have um, a small positive impact or a little bit less of a negative impact. But what I think is tremendously undercovered and, and what's most interesting to me is those areas where people are trying to change our energy systems, change the way we produce steel, change the um, 
you know, invent these crazy new, um, uh, uh, you know, finance systems or entire new industries where they say, okay, we're not even going to sell you a product. We're going to sell you a new way of interacting with the biosphere. So mm. you're going to be able to offset your carbon emissions. We're going to suck carbon out of the atmosphere or even the really crazy stuff where there's, you know, a couple folks out there who are saying, we're, we're going to, you know, give us 10 bucks and we'll put a little sulfur in the atmosphere and, and um, you know, block a little bit of sun's rays. Yes. Um, and, you know, I like, you know, I, it's a complicated um, area and, and I wouldn't come down with like one take on all of those different schemes. I mean, I don't think we're right. We're at uh, solar geoengineering yet. Yeah. And I, we should really, really try to avoid that. But that to me is like, the other area, this industrial transformation is is one thing that's really mm -hmm. fascinating to me. And then this sort of totally fascinating new frontier of capitalism that where, where people are trying to create a business solution that's going to solve, they say, this, um, you know, planetary scale problem. And you know, no one can say whether that's going to work or not. It's sort of an alternative or um, in some ways being proposed as an alternative, like, look, our political systems have failed to address yeah. this problem. Yeah. So let's see if Silicon Valley venture capital can can solve it a different way. Which is an interesting thing to say when we're, we're sitting here kind of a year out from the IRA. And, you know, I, I just, as I told you, came back from a trip from Europe and all anybody was talking about was, you know, when the U.S., gets involved in something, it's either zero or 150%. And here we are, trillion dollar package between IRA and uh, Infrastructure Bill and CHIPS Act. And yet, you know, with all of the incentives that are being offered to consumers to, to choose EVs, to choose heat pumps, you sound a little skeptical that I as a consumer or, you know, our, our listeners can actually have meaningful impact given the scale of this problem is that is that am i reading that correctly uh well it's it's i am skeptical okay. but but um and and it's, it's interesting that you picked that out um or i guess just very astute but yeah. but i <laughs> you're clearly listening um <laughs> but i think it's not that i'm skeptical that individuals can make a difference okay i think individuals have to make a difference um and as individuals, we have to feel our responsibility for this problem, especially, especially, especially as individuals living in the developed world with access to, you know, uh, media that can disseminate our views. We should be careful about what we say and try to be responsible um, and, and try to make other people aware. And, and also, I mean, it's like climate change is a first world. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, a global problem, but it's, first world caused. Yes. I mean, so, so as consumers in the first world, we're, we're, we're the ones responsible. That said, I think that narratives where we, where, where, you know, companies basically try to put the onus back on the consumer and say, mm. oh, well, the consumers aren't asking for green cruises. The consumers aren't asking for whatever this thing is, is a total cop out. And I think a very, um, sort of, you know, just a, a, an intellectually dishonest way to approach climate change because, you know, the the demands of the market are what created this problem in the first place. Yes. And it's like obvious that an un, unfettered market with, you know, 
people just being advertised like, look at this product. Don't you want it? You want it. Buy it. And then they buy it. And then it's their fault for buying it. I mean, it's... Yeah, like, no, you asked for it. You're benefiting from the fact that they're purchasing and you're turning around and blaming them for the emissions caused by your it, production. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and so I, I find that incredibly disingenuous. And I think that, you know, it's so so it's it's a it's a weird, I guess maybe a weird position to have, but but it's what you know I feel is that, you know, we are responsible. Some people are more responsible than others, and there's no Narratives about consumers making a positive difference are good insofar as they don't absolve other more powerful people, CEOs of these companies, shareholders, government regulators, legislators, from their responsibility to be steering, you know, the economy, the world in the right direction. Yeah, heard, heard. Well, on on the idea of consumers changing their behavior, you're a great piece about cruises and the, the cruise industry and you know, somebody who's not taken a cruise before, but obviously knows, hey, they're fun, they're exciting. Obviously, people spend, you know, four, five, six figures sometimes on on these experiences. What What is it about the cruise industry that really stuck out to you as, you know, a, a part of this broader emissions problem? Yeah, that, I mean, it was a fun piece to work on. It, it and And I guess the you know, starting off writing that piece, I had that, um, you know, that supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, um, <laughs> you know, essay in my mind. And, yes. and I think that cruises attracted me as something I wanted to look at because it, in some ways, is emblematic of the type of problem that we have if you look at climate change from a consumption perspective. I mean, my opening paragraph in that piece is just like, like, just take a second. Like, I just wanted the reader to, like, take a second and, like, look at a cruise ship. Like, look at what it is. It's, like, a, it's a huge building, and it's covered in, like, beach umbrellas and water slides, and it's painted white. It's a small European city yeah, on ex- the open ocean. Like, exactly. Let's be honest. <laughs> and, it's, and it's just, like, chugs through the ocean. It's, you know, it's, I mean, you know, Wally already did this. Yeah. I mean, like, the, the cruise idea as the embodiment of sort of, like, this wasteful consumer um, paradigm that we kind of all seem to have accepted and, and that is ultimately what is causing our problem. Um, and, and my, my thought on it was like, you know, what would a future archeologist think of a cruise ship looking at it, you know, 10,000 years from now, and regardless of how this whole climate disasters turns out, I mean, it's what, what, what did the civilization that built this value. Um, and that's not to blame people who take cruises um, at all, because I can completely understand why you would. The world is very, you know, people's lives, are li- living life is tough. And cruises are a very economical way to get, you know, family trop- entertainment. Yeah. Family entertainment. You can yeah. get the kids, they can go play in the, you know, they can go to the, you know, disco on the cruise ship. Yes. Grandma's happy and you, you know, you got something, you got a break from, you know, the toils of, you know, the travails of (laughs) everyday life. life, Yeah. Um, But it is, I mean, it, it also stands out as just the most, you know, to get, to get to to the point, cruises are um, probably the most, you know, unsustainable form of vacation you could take because just the sort of thermodynamics of it, the physics, obviously traveling to a resort and moving your physical body and a couple of your, um, your, you know, suitcases to 
a resort to a hotel is way less energy intensive than dragging your hotel around the world with you, especially because you often have to fly somewhere and then take a cruise. Yes. So normally yeah. the most emissions in intensive part of your vacation is getting there. But on cruises, you actually get there and then that's just the start. Yeah. And then the cruise is roughly, could be roughly double as emissions intensive um, for the same distance. So um, as you were writing this piece, did you hear from consumers on how they're changing their vacation behavior or... You know, you talked about the economical piece of it, right? Like, the, I think that that's the the biggest thing that always sticks out to me. And and as an investor, the argument that I'm always making when we see something that is climate positive but so much more expensive than the existing, you know, emitting uh, alternative, I am skeptical that consumers care enough to pay that much more. Well, again, I mean, I feel like they care, but they care about money more. I mean, we did yeah. a, a, um, a survey as part of that piece. Okay. I think we surveyed like, you know, a thousand or 2000 people, um, you know, people who t Americans who take vacations and cost was much higher on their list of priorities. Cost was the most important factor, um, of five different factors. And then sustainability was the lowest factor. Oh, Jesus. So, but, but like, I mean, I don't know for the average person, I, I feel like you can't, really blame them for taking, taking this, yeah. you know, like, it's not a matter of them not caring enough necessarily because they're, it's not even, it's not a matter of paying like, you know, 5% more. It's a matter of like the, the so-called sustainable cruises don't really exist yet. Um, they're getting a little bit better. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a small cruise company that I focused on in the article that was making some of the most positive changes, though small cruise ships counterintuitively actually have oftentimes a higher emissions per passenger really? than the big cruise ships. Um, wow. But, you know, the small cruise company, this one. who The Norwegian one, right? Yeah, yeah. Hutchigrudnes, yeah. this Norwegian cruise company, was, you know, they're, they're investing in a zero emissions cruise ships. So arguably by taking their cruise, you're supporting that version of, um, of, of uh, cruise lines. But, but, you know, those cruises are totally inaccessible for, yeah. for most people. Um, when you're comparing them to sort of like the, you know, bargain carnival cruise, you know, start in Miami and do the loop in the Caribbean or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. um, it's, I don't know. It, it, it's that, that was a bit of a depressing article for me because the way that things look to be shaking out was, you know, the cruise companies are not going to do the big cruise companies aren't really going to do anything serious until they have to. Mm -hmm. Um, and green cruising is kind of like a, you know, a, a nice add-on for, you know, wealthy folks who want to feel good about it. Yeah, but it's 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 still quite cost ineffective for for the average consumer. I mean, yeah, that's 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 the general, I think, story with a lot of these better for the planet consumer alternatives, is that they they kind of start in the Tesla model where they're like, build a roadster, build a sports car, and if it does well enough, you know, we'll build a sort of high end sedan. And if that does well enough, we'll build a, you know, consumer-friendly model. And it's worked relatively well for Tesla. I'm not sure I've seen too many other case studies in and around climate that have, that have done that. Yeah, well, it, it's, it, work, it works for Tesla. And I mean, yeah. I, think, I think that was an incredibly, you know, it's, it's one of the, the, you know, greatest business upsets of the past, you know, 20 years, if yeah. not the greatest, was Tesla coming into the auto market and, and just, you know, 
paving the way for EVs. But, you know, the one example doesn't prove the rule. That doesn't mean that every like, you know, luxury eco-friendly product is necessarily going to create this sort of like, you know, broad change. And eventually you're going to get your $35,000, you know, car, you know, or version of that in clothing or what have you. Yeah. The important thing with Tesla is that they are supported by um, tremendous government subsidies, which is not Tesla's fault. I mean, I I think, you know, it was a good, good policy and they made a, you know, good business decision based on that policy. And it seems like everybody's winning. Um, But you you need the you need you need the government policy yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. Mean, so so like saying that Tesla could do that sort of thing alone, you know, it it doesn't apply to, to every sector. To every I sector. mean, so so if you have a cruise industry, for instance, absent strong regulations from the IMO that are pushing things in the right direction, you're not, you know, you're not you you might be showing what's possible, but you're not necessarily going to going to get that on a on a broad on a broad scale. Yeah. So let's let's chat about the IMO because you brought it up and and you know we've been focusing the last sort of 10 minutes on cruises but really it's kind of global maritime industry shipping lanes uh we as consumers want more things they need to get to us right away and that creates a tremendous load on logistics and shipping. Um, you've written about the IMO, you've written about some of the challenges in actually getting real emission standards passed. What What is the IMO and, and why has it been so challenging to set these standards? Yeah, so so the, the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is, is a part of the UN um, and they basically have a mandate over everything on the oceans. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're the international authority. And so it is possible to chain shipping to regulate shipping on a country by country basis. Countries can make policies, you know, or individual ports even can say, you know, you have to have done X in order to enter a port. Like yes. You can't bring your dirty ship into our port. And if enough countries do that, you know, if the U.S. made some really stringent um, regulations, it would, it, on, on, on uh, you know, shipping emissions, it would, it would have a tremendous impact you know, because every ship that visited the U.S. would have to abide by those. And do folks do it unilaterally, or is it kind of like a block? Like the EU has their own... The EU has their own regulatory capacity, and the EU has been one of the, um, you know, one of the stronger players or the more muscular players in regulating international shipping. But really, like, the best player to regulate international shipping is the IMO, because, you know, they they could put shipping on the right track to meet the Paris Climate Accords, like, tomorrow. Um, they have the power to do that. They can tell the shippers what to do. And then what's really great that they can do is, is they can actually, you know, impose a tax on um, shipping, on shipping carbon emissions. Yep. And then they're the only, you know, th- they're the best player in order to, they could actually take that money and then pr- give it to developing nations. So, so they are able to make the most equitable transition. Whereas if we have the U.S., you know, the U.S. is going to tax shippers and then it's going to help the U.S., which is great for the U.S., but maybe not great for the global fight yep. against climate change. Yep. Um, the problem with the IMO um, is that it's a deliberative body that um, is in, a, a, to, to a broad extent, somewhat, let's characterize this right, is heavily influenced by the industry that it's meant to be ah, regulating. Yes. Um, and those industry associations tend to have a really, really strong say over actually what the IMO passes, what policies they put forward. The IMO also works incredibly slowly. 
um, they're a consensus-based organization. So basically everyone has to sign off, every country delegation has to sign off, which means you end up with sort of a lowest common denominator approach to um, shipping emissions. So literally nothing, I mean, there's not a majority kind of... I think technically they can pass things with a majority, but... but the general principle, they try not to. Yeah. Yeah. In general, they try to get everyone to agree. And I think, I think, you know, they, they don't want disharmony. Right. Um, so, you know, they did actually make a tremendous improvement. They had an insane climate um, policy uh, before the summer. They had, they had, you know, for the past couple of years, they had said, now I'm forgetting what it was, but they wanted to aim for net zero emissions by 2100 or something mm. ridiculous. Okay. And that was just totally out of whack with, the signs out of whack with like two degrees. They were talking like 3.5 degrees. I don't know what, what yeah. emissions track we would be on for that. So they recently scaled back their, or, or, you know, changed their broad goal this summer to say, okay, we actually want um, zero emissions by 2050, you know, but, but now it's all about what policies are you actually going to implement to cause that to happen? Are you going to make a, a firm suggestion, you know, and, and say very sternly, like, please, you know, cut your emissions, or are you actually going to implement policies that are going to, you know, either through economic means or, you know, command and control means actually just make that happen? It kind of reminds me of like this whole talk around voluntary carbon markets and people participating in voluntary carbon markets. And it's like, well, if there's no regulatory standards to do it and there's no consumer backlash, right? As, as you said, sustainability ranked fifth just in that one industry, but I'm sure you can extrapolate that to to other consumer purchases like fashion or like vehicles or whatever, you know, why, why do it? There's no teeth to the legislation. And it, it ultimately makes people feel good that things are happening. And yet like there's no incentive for those things to happen. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you make up your own carbon credit standard, you know, <laughs> Which and you make up your own airlines, right? No. <laughs> if you make up your own offsets and then you and then you sell them, I mean, it's it's very counterproductive. Yes. Um, it's it's you know it's actively bad if you're if you're buying and advertising that you're buying, you know, worthless offsets and then claiming that you're part of the solution. I mean, that's not that's not like you're you know only ten percent of the way to being part of the solution. In my mind, it would be better if you didn't do anything at all because you're not. At least you wouldn't have been misleading mm -hmm. people. To, to say you're doing something. That's not to say that like every offsetting program is like complete BS that I don't, I don't think that's the case, but um, you can't, you know, there's been a lot of reporting around this and you can't, you, you can't sell the same, you know, patch of trees 10 times and, and, and say it's good because that, that's not, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I guess the, the right way to ask this question is like these, private companies, the new climate tech wave, we are talking a couple of days before climate week kicks off. Um, you've been a skeptic of, of climate week. I think you attended last year uh, and saw some of the conversations that were happening from folks in industry, or maybe it was their industry PR megaphones. You know, what role can industry play in these changes um, without government intervention? Or, or, or can they? Or are we just sort of like fooling ourselves until we start getting, you know, the carrot, which we've gotten with the IRA, and we start getting a stick, which is 
sanctions or, or, or targets or caps or things like that? Yeah. I mean, that, it's a tough question. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to be at climate week again this okay. year and, and, um, you know, it's, it's right here. I might as well go. <laughs> um, I don't have to, you know, I can take the subway to climate week, but, um, it, it's a tough question. I think that, you know, there's, there's a risk of making like a lot of blanket statements because I think that the spectrum of what different companies are doing or, you know, is, is really tremendously broad. I think as in, in general, a lot of people are approaching climate change as a marketing problem um, and not as like a, you know, physics, you know, geosciences. Wait, let's un- un- unpack that for me. That's, that's fascinating because everybody talks about emission standards and they talk about 1.5 degrees Celsius. Where does the, I mean, why is it a marketing problem or why is it being proposed as a marketing problem? Well, I mean, it's just, it, it, it seems to me, you know, I, I open up, up my inbox every day and every day it's another company telling me why they're part of the solution. They're doing the right thing. And yet, despite, you know, if, if you took their word for it, um, despite all of that, we're, we're still going in the wrong direction. So it's, it just seems to me like there's a lot of investment in telling nice stories about climate change in doing, you know, a small thing and then talking a lot about it, you know, so I would be interested to compare how many people, you know, is the marketing department at, you know, X, whatever automaker, how much resources is going to that versus how much is going to actually you know, doing R and D, engineering, exactly the really yeah. difficult work of like transforming those supply chains. Um, so I think that you know, companies need to have honest discussions, and I think they need to be open to being challenged um, on things. And I think they need to need to be open to to answering tough questions. And I think that if you really care about getting all of us on the right track, and you know, averting the you know looming death and destruction that is, you know, coming and going to be worse, the worse, the, the longer we don't address this in a serious way, or the, the worse our, we let our emissions problem get, then I think you need to be willing to have open public discussions with people who are skeptical of what you think. I went to, the reason I was disappointed in Climate Week when I went the first time last year was that the ethos of climate group, which was organizing it. And I spoke to the um, director of climate group as, as part of that article. And I asked her why they were having these panels and not seem, seemingly not to include, you know, individuals in the communities that were affected by these projects or, you know, it, it, or not, it just didn't seem like there was very many people in the group who were saying, you know, look at you national grid, like your hydrogen hub, uh, idea is, is ridiculous. It's going to waste a ton of energy. It's going to slow us down. Also, by the way, please stop like actively campaigning against like New York's efforts yes. to, to eliminate natural gas stoves. Like why, why stop it? And, you know, if National Grid, for instance, which was a headline sponsor last year, wanted to actually be part of the solution, they should be putting themselves in a room with people who are, um, skeptical of what they're doing and trying to defend their position. And if yeah. you can't defend your position, then change Maybe it. you're on the wrong side <laughs> of it, right? Well, it's, it's so interesting too, is, is all these groups are now creating new names. Um, I unfortunately am a New York Giants fan uh, and watch the, the beatdown that we took on Sunday night. But in the middle of it, on Sunday Night Football, on NBC, 
there's an ad for energy transfer. And I, I swear, Andre, it, it sounded like an SNL skit. Like it was like, the best things in our world are built by oil and gas. Mm. And I'm like, that is a three and a half million dollar 30 second spot that climate positive startups don't have the money to spend. And, and honestly, if I was their investor, I would say don't spend it that way. Yeah. Um, NGOs don't have the money to spend like that. The communities that are being affected by, you know, whatever, the byproducts of oil and gas, fracking, however you want to say it, they don't have the money to spend. And so it, it still feels like fighting an uphill battle as excited as I want to be as an investor in these technology products. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're coming at this with a rock and, and, you know, they've got an arsenal. That's, I mean, I, I, I think that's spot on and, and that's totally, it's, it's one of the things that I haven't actually found the right way to write about, but that I think is really fascinating and, you know, disturbing about what's going on is that when, when you're, you know, when industry is doing the wrong thing or when, when something not great is happening, the tendency is, okay, let's rebrand that. Let's yeah. change the terms. So what, what I see happening over and over again is sort of like, there'll be a small change. They'll make small changes. Like for instance, National Grid, if I'm just going to wail on them, sure. um, you know, has made some positive changes, right? They're, um, but it's sort of the kind of thing where it's like, you know, you'll have scientists or advocates or um, politicians who are, you know, actually committed to the green transition say, you need to do this. And then, you know, you'll hear industry say, yeah, we're doing that. We have this name for it. And it's like, wait, but that's not it. And it's like, no, this is exactly what you said. Mm. We like that we have, you know, they, it's a, it's a labeling game. Like, no, you asked for, you asked for blue hydrogen, didn't you? And we delivered. It's like, no one asked you for blue hydrogen. Like <laughs> you're, you're, you're meeting the letter of the law, but probably not the spirit of it. Right. Yeah, or like, you just made up your own law and said you were following <laughs> it. It's like, what are you talking about? Right. Right. Um, what is a story that you've covered that you feel like isn't getting talked about enough, uh, in this sort of broader global, uh, context of climate change? Yeah. Um, well, the easy answer is everything, but, mm. um, I think that, you know, it's not an original take, but I think that whatever amount of attention we spend on climate change and spend on what needs to be a, you know, society level transformation and, you know, across the entire economy over the next 30 years in order to, you know, change our energy systems and produce the massive amounts of renewable energy that we need to, you know, um, eliminate oil and gas and decarbonize these hard to decarbonize industries. I mean, is not getting nearly enough attention. Um, and, sometimes is also covered, you know, in a, in a sort of cursory, like checkmark way, um, which is, you know, I think journalists, we're all, you know, doing our best, but um, it, it's not getting the amount of attention it needs. In, in specifically, though, I think there's two stories um, that I'm really interested in and that, that I think, you know, probably should be getting more attention. One is the... Um, escalating efforts by the more radical wing of the climate um, protest movement, especially mm. mostly in Europe. Climate denial. No, no, the climate, uh, sorry, the climate, climate, uh, pro-climate protesters. Oh, okay, pro okay, sorry, action Understood. protesters. Yes. Um, I think the numbers of protesters are, seem to be increasing. Um, mm. You know, they're telling me they have twice as many people, three times as many people as last year. And um, the, they're increasingly, I think, willing to just completely deny, basically say the government is illegitimate, like the government of Germany, the government of the UK, because they're not 
addressing this problem seriously. Yeah. I think that's a really fascinating story. It's debatable whether, you know, gluing yourself to a road, to the Autobahn or whatever. <laughs> Throwing uh, tomato sauce at paintings. Exactly. And, yeah. Whether whether that is, you know, just going to piss people off or whether that's going to um, actually move the conversation in the right direction or, or wake, you know, they always talk about sort of wake, waking people up. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think in general, it's something I don't think we've seen so much before or we're just seeing more of it now where, um, you know, you're having more protests that are, you know, directly saying like, you know, the, the, the state, the like, you know, institutions that are supposed to maintain law and order are not legitimate. And that's why I'm going to glue myself to the road. That's why I'm going to break the law. Is it a generational thing? Like, I, I feel like when I speak to folks under the age of 30, even in sort of social groups, it's like kind of well accepted that like the government isn't doing enough. Whereas when you speak to folks that, you know, I don't know, maybe elder millennial, you know, Gen X or whatever, um, there's a level of hopefulness and positivity. And it, it, it kind of surprises me, right? You would expect younger folks to be more hopeful and you would expect, you know, folks that are maybe a little bit kind of, you know, wizened to be skeptical. I, I tend to find the opposite and I'm not sure if it's just anecdotal or, or that's something that you're hearing about as well. I, th I think it is generational to some extent. Um, I think that maybe it's that older folks have sort of been the frog in the boiling pot of water for longer. <laughs> so like, you know, the way in some way, the way that you talked that you first heard about climate change or the way that you talked about it in the year 2000, when it was incredibly serious, but when it was more of a maybe, it was more of like, oh, we got to deal with that at some point um, sort of problem. I think that I think that is very powerful, the, the way that you first understood it and yeah. that that sticks even when, you know, the narrative that we're talking about now and the, you know, physical reality of what we're dealing with is, you know, many, many times more dire. Um, it's difficult to unstick that sort of initial complacency. So I think that younger people um, entering that conversation, you know, reading the, uh, IPCC reports, you know, get a, get a completely different sense. And, and, you know, they look at what, you know, is being done to address it and, and like admitting that like, there are many good things that have happened. I mean, not least the IRA in, in a large regard, it's also Looney Tunes, like the way that, you know, people are, you know, it's, it's the same thing with the, you know, sort of the, the IPCC says, this needs to happen. And then, you know, politicians say, yeah, we're doing that. Like exactly that. But then they're, you they're know, not. they're not, I mean, yeah. they're, you know, it's, it's, you know, I hear you loud and clear sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it's, it's enough to make somebody who is, I, I would consider myself a generally optimistic person. The more you understand about the scale of this problem, the more you understand about the physics of it, or just how long it will take us to no pun intended, turn these massive cruise ships around uh, in, in across every industry and how the incentives are not laid out to do that in any way at, at any point, right? Um, on one hand, it's exciting that there's more money raised for climate investment broadly, right? Uh, venture capital, uh, private equity, every quarter with maybe you know, some rare exceptions, there's more money raised every quarter there's more um, institutions, endowments that are allocating to this stuff. And yet the question always becomes like, are we moving fast enough? Yeah. And we can't even, I think, as a business community, align on 
like what the goal is. Because you'll hear some folks say it's direct air capture or nothing at all. And other folks say, well, it's no, it's wind energy and we need to make massive investment in that or it's geothermal or whatever. And it's kind of like, you want to say yes and, but nobody agrees on that. Everybody's sort of touting their specific solution as the panacea. And I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say in your you know, years of covering this, like you haven't found one solution or have you? No, there's, there's, there's no one solution. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I wish, I wish I had it. Jay, the answer uh, is this. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's, you know, mass timber. Mass yeah. timber is great. Love mass timber. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this is, I guess, brings us back to the beginning of the conversation as sort of like this narrative problem that climate has is that I like, people actually want to do something mm-hmm. and people with money and power want to do something. And I think that they're to some extent also often lost or often led down um, you know, less helpful paths, um, you know, sort of in a, in a Pied Piper kind of way, or just sort of like follow the group, um, down the path. And then everyone agrees, oh, we need, you know, the solution to climate change is we, we absolutely need, a offset, a, a offset trading program. And it's like, do we need an offset trading program? Like, is that like exactly <laughs> like, what if we just, what if everyone just cut their emissions? Yeah. Maybe that would work. Um, so yeah, but 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 you know, there's people who would try to sell you the sort of like electrify everything narrative, which you know I think like electrification is is tremendously important. And Can our grid even handle that? If you if you swapped everybody's car out tomorrow for an EV, well, I mean we every we need the like massive grid upgrades. We need a massive amount of new renewable energy. There, but there are you know uses for biofuels and and. Um, we're going to need some like hydrogen based electric yeah. like e-fuels um in order to in order to meet these other applications but but i think everyone like does need better information and and kind of needs someone to decide like okay this is what we're doing and i think that's to some extent i mean the ira has done some of that um you know not everything in the ira is is fantastic but but a lot of it is good and at least it's sort of like set the direction so that people can start, you know, like, you know, doing something. Yeah. Yeah. In your time covering this topic, what, what has been the hardest story for you to cover, whether it's just because of the topic itself or like getting, getting sort of the, the truth out of, uh, out of the story. Yeah. The hardest story. Well, I have two in mind and I'm trying to sure. decide which one I want to talk about. I think that um, probably maybe it's not the hardest story I've ever done, but it's the hardest one I did recently um, was a couple of months ago, back in February, I went out to Reno, Nevada and met with this guy named Luke Eisman, who I think I mentioned earlier, but um, he was starting a company trying to get people to pay him to spray sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere yeah. to cool the climate. And it's sort of, you know, a ridiculous concept in a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> like it was, it was funny. I mean, he was, you know, him and his partner had, you know, a, a, you know, half a million dollars, or I think later they had a million dollars in investment, you know, and, you know, Tim Draper is supporting them, like, and they're in a hotel room, you know, saying like, oh, doesn't this look like a meth lab and like cooking, you know, burning like sulfur-based fun- fungicide, and then they were going to put it in a balloon and release it and say like, wow, they just did a little bit to help the climate. And it's like, that's obviously 
not going to work. Yeah. Um, you know, but they're, they're still charging ahead. But in a certain way, though, I didn't want to d- dismiss it completely. If only that we're actually closer to that sort of thing than I think a lot of people realize. Really? And I think that, you know, at its core, what, what they're trying to push, or I think, I think the positive message to sort of take out of that, um, which the founders of, of make sunsets, that company are not unaware of is that this is the future that this is, this is the ultimate tech solution. If we don't, um, if we don't solve this problem by stop, by stopping emissions and um, t- in the next in the next couple of decades, like this is this is the alternative. This is the break glass in case of you know emergency kind of thing. In case of uncontrolled climate change, the only option left starts becoming this really really radical stuff where we're gonna you know try to block ten percent of the sun's rays or whatever to you know stop the like we're gonna we're gonna cooking. have to get there eventually if if we're not capping emissions at the source, and we're not doing mass, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, which again has its own issues because the oil and gas industry is the one that currently benefits from it. Your point is we're gonna have to get to to that. We're gonna yeah. have to move towards and, that. And so so it was a difficult piece to write, and I, I don't know if I actually got the balance right on it. Yeah, but but that. I think it's important to for people to pay attention to to that narrative that you know this is this is the medicine we're going to get and if that freaks you out if that seems like a horrible idea that's because it's the it is I mean it might it probably is but that's that's the only thing left We've already failed at the other solution so now we're turning to this Exactly yeah. so so I think I think people need to understand that that like the, yeah. the plan D yeah, what, yeah. What we're talking about there. I'm I so I love that story. I'm surprised that was your answer because I I would have figured that the hardest story would have been somewhat Elon related. You you wrote the cover story in 2021, and it was you know I, I think generally positive. Tesla had been on a tear. SpaceX had you know launched a bunch of rockets and brought them back. And then you wrote a follow up. I think it was earlier this year, maybe end of last year, talking about how how he had kind of lost the plot. So. On one hand, I think it's kind of exciting that the number one richest person in the world, or let's say, you know, whatever, top two, wherever he is right now, is a climate entrepreneur, right? Tesla is, however you want to call it, it's, it's bringing mass EVs to market. It is a climate company. And yet, more and more, we, you know, before we got on Mike talking about Twitter, more and more it feels like he's kind of lost the plot. So, you know, what, what do you, as you cover Elon, as you cover these stories, like, can we still speak about him in the same way as a as a as a climate entrepreneur? Yeah, and and just really quick, I got to credit my co-authors on that cover story. It was uh, I wrote it with Molly Ball and Jeffrey Kluger, and, sure. and uh, so the three of us were were uh, were credited on that story. I can't I can't take full credit. I thought it came out really well um, for that for the 2021 person of the year. Um, it's difficult to get inside Elon's head, though he does I guess leave a lot sort of spread across the internet. <laughs> Um, so there's, there's clues to pick up on. And if you go on, you know, x.com, I think it actually, you know, you don't have to follow him. It just kind of puts his tweets Shows right up, up anyway. there. Yeah. It's really, you know, it's elon.com. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that, you know, it's, you're right. I mean, it is, it is, you know, I think that the things he's done for EVs have been, have been tremendous. 
you know, you can't attribute it to him alone. Um, one of my, the stories, my favorite stories that I've written was a profile of J.B. Straubel, who was one of the other co-founders of Tesla. Now he's running Redwood Materials, which is, you know, a battery materials and recycling company. Yeah. Um, but he was a, responsible for a lot of the sort of technical guts of Tesla. And I, I mean, multiple people who were involved early in Tesla basically told me, you know, there's no, there's no Tesla without JB. So it took Elon's money. It took Elon's drive, but it, it he wasn't the only person yeah. involved there. But, but regardless, I mean, I think that, you know, Elon is maybe a cautionary tale about spending too much time on social media. That's sort of my take. Okay. Um, it, it seems to me, I, I mean, yeah, that I think he lost the plot. I think he's very good at some things, but social media makes you want to be good at everything. It makes you want to be everything to everybody all at once and, and sort of magnifies, um, you know, simultaneously magnifies a, a person like Elon, but also I think, you know, makes him feel small yeah. um, and makes him feel like he has to lash out at journalists who don't like him, publications that are mean to him, um, which is just, it, it's just not, you know, it's not a good use of time. I mean, like, and, and, you know, I think now he's, he's very, he seems to be very caught up in this sort of, in the, the current AI narrative. It's not something I know a lot about. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, th I think he's gone, gotten a little, a little too far in the, the sort of, uh, techno futurist direction mm. and there's there's some very there's there's some very very big practical problems that we have right now that really don't have a lot to do with going to mars and i think that you know or 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 ai super intelligence that, that I, I think he would be well suited to, to no i hear focusing you on. i hear you i i i struggle with it and sort of the last bit on elon here like we should be holding this entrepreneur up as you know, an example of somebody who who can come into a space like EVs and and do for it what we need done in building materials or shipping or logistics or travel or whatever. And yet I feel like every every bit of the dialogue now becomes about can you believe what he said on X or or the latest tweet or the latest fight? And it, you know, it diminishes the shine a little bit. And and Right or wrong, right? Maybe some of our listeners are like, well, it shouldn't because you can't, you know, take away the good that he's done because of this. But but I, I feel like you you as an entrepreneur want to sort of look to other entrepreneurs as as sort of the the beacon of success. Um, and and I feel like this whole like Twitter thing is has taken away from some really good contributions that he's made with his money, with his investment, with his with his drive. Um, jury's still out. Maybe, maybe you know. Maybe he turns it around and, and, and we see another climate company, you know, like Solar City or something that, that really becomes a paradigm shift uh, in, in the future. Um, I'll close with you where we like to close with all of our guests. Uh, and I know that our conversation today has gone down, you know, a, a skeptical and, and, you know, somewhat um, unfulfilled path because there's all these ambitions that folks have. And from your coverage and, and some of my research, I, I found that more is being talked about than is being done, right? Is, is probably the, the, the yeah. fair way to say it. How do you stay optimistic about covering this topic and, and the work that you're doing? Because I, I think by the very nature of you covering it, I think you are actually an optimist. And yet, um, from everything that you see, there can get, you know, be a lot of doom and gloom out there. So um, what is one thing that keeps you hopeful about this fight against climate change? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think... 
I, I, I guess I'm a, maybe I'm a bit of a, a, a grump in the world, of, <laughs> in, in the world of climate change. But, but I guess part of it is that, you know, I, I buy the sort of narrative that like positivity is important and we have to triumph successes. But, you know, I don't think it's necessarily always the best role that I can play. Um, sometimes I think, I think it is important to just sort of, you know, take a, a dead on look at stuff and, and call it how you see it. Um, but what keeps me positive or at least, you know, feeling like some, some, some good is happening. I mean, the passage of the IRA, you know, was, you know, we just got that by the very skin of our yeah. teeth, just barely. Um, but we got it and it's made a, you know, big difference. And, um, so following the impacts of that legislation, I mean, is really heartening. Um, and to see what, you know, it shows what's, what's possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that people's awareness is changing. I think that even in the past, like two years, two and a half years, I'm kind of seeing a difference in the way that people are talking about it. It's not me that's responsible, of course. Um, <laughs> single-handedly. I'll single-handedly. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think, I think people are often, as we've said, I mean, confused about what they should be doing, how they should be doing it. Maybe they're holding up the wrong thing. But I do think that people are starting to get it that, you know, some like unsustainable means unsustainable. Yeah. That means that doesn't mean we can do this for, you know, 20 more years. It means like it's got to stop. Yeah. Um, and I think people are starting to understand that and starting to understand, I guess, especially through the coronavirus pandemic, maybe that like, you know, business as usual is not always going to be business as usual. Like the way that things have been for your life, you know, that's, you know, that sort of confirmation bias view is not always going to hold up forever. Like there are going to be changes. And if you want them to be the kind of changes that, you know, maybe are a little uncomfortable, maybe are, you know, maybe you don't get everything you want. Maybe you don't like, you know, get to go on the mega crucifixion you wanted to, you know, you have to do that in order to, to, to hold off on some of the really um, drastic things that, that can happen and are already starting to happen. So I think, I think that sort of gut level emotional understanding of climate change, what it means that it's happening right now is starting to, starting to get through to people. Um, and, and I think that's very positive. Yeah. Well, look, I, I appreciate the role that you fill in this, which is seeing it, telling it straight. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, look, I, I think there's enough folks out there, they're going to tout the positivity, rightly or wrongly. I think there are some really positive things that are going on. Um, but I think we need you out there to actually say, hey, this thing that you think is going to be the, the one, you know, savior, let's take a harder look at it. And, it, and it's not quite there. And so I've enjoyed following your, your reporting uh, even well before we met last year um, and, and tr seeing how you're tracking some of these industries and topics. I'm excited to do that. We're going to link a lot of your, your articles as part of the show notes. Um, but just want to say thank you so much for joining us on Climb and, and sharing, you know, your, your perspectives on these topics with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure.